The pandemic-era immigration policy known as Title 42 that limited access to asylum has been lifted with new federal rules now in place. It's Friday, May 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a meeting between the White House and congressional leaders over the debt ceiling has been postponed. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. What I truly believe here, looking at the actions of this president, he doesn't want a deal, he wants a default. Also this hour. We still have these persistent challenges. We have people dying before they should. A new report finds where you live in Boston could change your life expectancy by as much as 23 years. And the labor fight over housekeeping service at hotels. In sports, Celtics win and keep their season alive. Partly sunny in the 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Migrants at the southern U.S. border are finding a different set of immigration rules today after the pandemic-related immigration policy known as Title 42 expired last night. That policy allowed authorities to quickly expel people. Today, new rules mean migrants have to make an appointment to get an asylum hearing, but many communities are bracing for an increase of people, and some officials say they're not pre- prepared to provide food and shelter. Yuma, Arizona Mayor Doug Nichols is calling on the White House for more help. This is a federal issue. This is not a local issue. It needs to be addressed directly by the federal government. Mr. President, declare a national emergency and get real solutions on our border for our communities and for Yuma. The president has sent 1,500 military troops down to the U.S. border to observe and maintain safety. Elon Musk says he's lined up a new Twitter CEO to start in about six weeks. He didn't name the person, although his tweet refers to his replacement as a, quote, she. Rachel Myro of member station KQED has more. Musk tweeted he'll transition to executive chair and chief technology officer of Twitter, apparently making good on a promise to abide by the results of a poll he posted in December. In that poll, he asked if he should step down as head of Twitter. Seventeen and a half million people weighed in, and more than 57 percent of them clicked yes. But he still owns the company he renamed X back in April. And given his penchant for public joking about Twitter, many doubt the mercurial multi-billionaire will ever ever really relinquished total control. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Myro. This week, Virginia became the eighth state to pull out of a national bipartisan voting collaborative. As Ben Paper of member station VPM reports, the partnership has been the target of right-wing conspiracy theories. The Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC, allows states to share voter information when people move or die and was set up by officials from both parties. But it's become the target of right-wing conspiracy theories falsely claiming the system was being orchestrated by left-wing activists. In a statement, Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, argued ERIC was expensive and questioned its security measures. Virginia delegate Marcus Simon, a Democrat, says the net result will be worse voter information. Yeah, we're, like I said, this is like a full MAGA move. Um, it's really disturbing to see uh, happening in Virginia. Republican officials in Texas, Florida, and Ohio have all pulled their states out of ERIC in recent months. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher at this hour. Both the Dow and S&P 500 futures up about four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are ahead by about two-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News.
From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Starting today, masks are no longer required in many health care settings across the state. That's because the state's COVID public health emergency ended yesterday. Many Boston-area hospitals will make mask-wearing optional, and Massachusetts Nurses Association President Katie Murphy says she believes that wearing them is still a good idea. People still want that level of comfort. I don't know whether they're immunocompromised, whether they have family members, but also our patients are immunocompromised. So I hope that hospitals are still going to have masks readily available for whoever wants to wear them. Hospitals in the state can still choose to enforce a mask mandate. A hotel in Dorchester will soon be turned into housing for unhoused people. The Boston Planning and Development Agency voted to convert the Comfort Inn on Morrissey Boulevard into nearly 100 affordable studio apartments. Those against the proposal claimed it could increase drug use and crime in the city. Developers say residents will go through screenings and background checks before being allowed to live there. The Environmental Protection Agency is proposing rules that would require power plants to cut emissions. The new federal standard would require that many gas-fired power plants in Massachusetts adopt new technology or switch to a new fuel source. Dan Dolan is with the New England Power Generators Association. He believes the proposed standards might be too much for some power facilities that operate only when there's a high demand for electricity. The regulations as proposed limit the capability of using these peaking facilities. That, I think, becomes problematic for the overall reliability of of the electric system. Environmental advocates say they hope the new standards will shut down fossil fuel plants and spur the growth of renewable energy. The co-founder and board president of Spare Change News is being remembered as the heart of the organization. James Shearer died Sunday at the age of 64. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports the organization will continue to publish its newspaper with articles that are important to marginalized communities. Shearer helped start Spare Change News in Boston in 1992 after experiencing homelessness and addiction. Board member Samuel Weem says the organization will not be the same without Shearer. He was someone that you liked and enjoyed following simply because he knew wherever he spoke. You know, he had been a street person, but he also had been someone who was housed. So he he knew both sides of this and he wanted to be as as helpful as he could. The paper's business model is designed to help low-income individuals and those experiencing homelessness. It's sold to them for 50 cents, then resold for $2. The seller gets to keep the profit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Celtics and the Sixers are going to a Game 7. Boston stayed alive last night with a 95-86 win in Philadelphia. The deciding game will be Sunday at the Garden. The Red Sox are back home tonight to take on the St. Louis Cardinals. In your forecast, partly sunny with a chance for showers. It'll be in the 80s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall into the 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and near 80. Sunny again on Sunday and in the 60s. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Thanks for 
for starting your day with WBUR. If your mom, wife, or daughter loves flowers, send them Winston Flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBUR a strong future. Choose from orchids, roses, or peonies for Mother's Day or get seasonal flowers every month. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Along with the COVID-19 public health emergency, the pandemic border policy known as Title 42 ended last night. The policy was used to quickly expel migrants without letting them seek asylum. The Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, announced new limits for asylum seekers now that Title 42 is gone. People who arrive at the border without using a lawful pathway will be presumed ineligible for asylum. Immigrant advocates quickly sued to block the requirements, saying they violate U.S. immigration law. NPR's Joel Rose was at the border when Title 42 expired. He joins us now from El Paso, Texas. Joel, let's start with the lawsuit. Uh, Who filed and what does it say? Yeah, immigrant advocates did not waste any time. Just as Title 42 officially expired last night, the ACLU and other immigrant advocacy groups filed to reopen an existing case before a judge in California. They're challenging a new Biden administration rule that makes it much harder for migrants to get asylum if they cross the border illegally after passing through Mexico or another country without seeking protection there first. Advocates say this is nearly identical to previous attempts to restrict access to asylum during the Trump administration that were blocked in court and that it's legal to seek asylum in the U.S. no matter how you arrived in the country. So how does Biden administration respond to that? Well, the administration disputes that this rule is the same as Trump's because it has some exemptions and because it's paired with new legal pathways as well. And I would expect the administration to defend this rule vigorously in court because it is a key component of how they plan to manage the border going forward. All right. So speaking of the border, you're there at the very moment that Title 42 expired. What did you see? Well, in El Paso, we saw a few hundred migrants lining up on the banks of the Rio Grande in front of a gate in the border wall, trying to turn themselves into the border patrol. There were similar scenes in Arizona. In South Texas, migrants waded through the river to try to reach U.S. soil. Overall, though, there there was no sudden rush on the border at the moment that Title 42 lifted, like some had been anticipating. However, we know that there are still tens of thousands of migrants who are in northern Mexico hoping for a chance to seek asylum, and and we really don't know what they're going to do next. What are you hearing from migrants? We did talk to some migrants in Juarez, just across the border in Mexico yesterday, and they do seem very aware that Title 42 is over. We talked to a young woman named Alejandra Gonzalez, who fled from Venezuela with her husband and her stepson. They tried to turn themselves in to the Border Patrol in El Paso before Title 42 ended. She says they waited for days in the sun outside of the wall on U.S. soil, but never got a chance to turn themselves in. Now they are back in Juarez, sleeping in a tent on the street, and they're afraid to try crossing again. Because if we turned ourselves in, we might be deported, she says, or detained and jailed. And I feel a lot of doubt and fear. And I think that's where a lot of migrants are today. They're confused and they are fearful about what comes next. And there was uh, one other legal development last night in Florida. Joel, what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, a federal judge in Florida blocked the Biden administration from releasing migrants from custody without a court date. Normally, immigration authorities do give migrants a date to appear in immigration court before releasing them. But the Biden administration has sometimes released migrants under what's known as parole with instructions to check in later with immigration authorities. And they do this in order to alleviate overcrowding in Border Patrol facilities. And immigration authorities had been preparing to do that again, if necessary, but a judge in Florida issued a temporary restraining order, putting that idea on hold for at least two weeks. All right, that's NPR's Jill Rose from El Paso, Texas. Jill, thanks. You bet. Washington is inching closer to a June 1st deadline to lift the nation's borrowing limit or run out of cash to pay America's debts. President Biden wants Congress to allow more borrowing without conditions. Republicans want Democrats to agree to deep spending cuts. Republican Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina is on the line now to discuss all this. Good morning, Congresswoman, and thank you for being on the program. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. So President Biden and top congressional leaders delayed a second meeting that was set for today's and it seemed like little headway was actually made during that first meeting. At this point, do you think a deal is possible? Are you optimistic? I am always going to be cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, we, there is precedent in recent history where we've had a Democrat president and Republican-controlled House where they've worked together to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to run out of money to pay our debts. I mean, when you look at the amount of tax revenue, number one, that's coming in year over year, we have 11 times the amount needed to pay the interest on the debt. We're not going to default unless the president decides to because he can prioritize spending. But in the meantime, you know, we need to figure out a way to balance the budget over the next, I don't know. 10, I would just 15, like to point out, though, that years. Secretary, mm-hmm. the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, says we will be running out of cash as soon as June 1st. Right. Well, here's the thing. We can prioritize. The president can prioritize spending. We're not going to run out of money to pay the interest on the debt because we get 11 times the interest on the debt and tax revenues year over year. It is a false statement equivocally to say that we're going to default on June 1st. That doesn't have to happen unless President Biden wants it to. Mm. Now, and those are just those are just the facts. But the mm-hmm. facts also remain that the last time the budget was balanced was under a Democrat president, mm-hmm. Republicans in 94, had a 10-year plan to balance the budget. It happened in four years under President Clinton's leadership because there was a surplus. I have a plan that would balance the budget in five years and realize that's a bit aggressive for most people in Washington. They don't move that fast. But I would even take 20 years at this point, something to show responsible decisions about the way we spend the American taxpayer dollar. But at this point, there is a danger that the country will default. And, uh, you know, I I understand that you are saying that it won't happen unless the president wants to. to, He can that without cutting money for veterans or Medicaid or Medicare or Social Security. Now, President Biden also accuses your party of being the problem here, holding the economy hostage by tying it to these deep spending cuts. Do you think the Republican Party should Can I just ask the question? Under President Biden, I'm answering your question because you don't want to deal with the facts this morning. And those are the facts. This is the problem with media that don't want to go down the middle and show. Now, I'm sharing facts. I don't appreciate that. I'd like to start with the brink, go back to the brinkmanship, because in the end, this is about Americans for both parties. I think a lot of Americans are worried, Republican or Democrat. They're nervous. What happens to about my mortgage? What happens with my job if the country defaults? And they wonder well, you can if lay anybody that blame on the president of the United States for not taking responsible 
measures to rein in spending. The reason we have inflation is because of the spending that we've had in both in both parties, by the way. Mm-hmm. President Biden added $4 trillion to the debt in the last two years. President Trump added $8 trillion during his tenure. So just over the last six years, $12 trillion in debt alone. We have $32 trillion now in total put on by both parties. And so I would hope that the American people will hold both sides accountable for the debacle that we're facing today. But if we don't cut taxes and we don't cut spending and the Federal Reserve doesn't uh, slow down the, the amount of money they're printing year over year, we wouldn't be in this problem. So we've got to, we've got to face the music and both sides have to come together to figure this out. And one of the issues you had, right, one of the issues you had without with your own party's bill was that it didn't deal with a balanced budget, but you eventually did get behind it. What changed? Yeah, I got to deal with, with the, the leadership to get a balanced budget amendment to get that conversation. But, you know, you want to talk about deep spending cuts in your intro, and these weren't deep, really that deep spending cuts. We're talking about $6.2 trillion versus $6.3 trillion, a difference in spending this year over last year. The cuts, in my opinion, didn't go deep enough, which is why I advocated for a balanced budget amendment. I mean, this is a plan that would, you know, Democrats would go off the, the, the deep end at 80 miles per hour versus Republicans going off at 70 miles per hour. This is a problem started by both parties, and they both need to sit down and fix it. That's Republican Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Musicians from dozens of countries compete this weekend in the Eurovision Grand Final. As NPR's Rachel Treisman reports, the spotlight is on a group from the country that won last year. Tvorchi is a popular EDM band from Ukraine. And this is Heart of Steel, the song that they're performing at Eurovision. Singer Jeffrey Kenny and producer Andrei Hutsuliak wrote it about a year ago as they watched Ukrainian fighters defend the steel factory in Mariupol. We're just trying to say the Ukrainians will fight no matter what till the end. Hutsuliak and Kenny first met seven years ago while studying pharmacy at a university in western Ukraine. Kenny, whose real name is Jimo Augustus Kahende, had moved there from Nigeria a few years earlier. I was walking home and he tapped my shoulder. For his part, Hutsuliak says he wasn't in the habit of approaching strangers on the street. I don't know what was in my head at the time, but I think that was a sign of destiny. The two started making music under the name Tvorchi, which means creative in Ukrainian. They released four albums in four years, headlining festivals and winning awards. Then Russia launched its full-scale invasion. The duo spent those first few weeks buying food, medicine, and supplies for soldiers and civilians. Before long, they returned to music. We want to help how best we could with what we knew how to do best. Tvorchi toured in cities across Europe to raise money for the war effort. They serenaded Ukrainian soldiers at military camps and on truck beds, too. As the application deadline for Eurovision approached, they decided to go for it. They ended up performing in the national competition at a Kiev metro station serving as a bomb shelter. And they won. It was crazy. The trains were moving at the time. It was really cold. A lot of us got sick as well. Their experience of performing between air raid alarms and on train tracks is just one example of how Ukrainians have adapted to the war. It made us you know, understand how to channel energy into doing something positive in a negative situation. That's one of the messages they want to deliver on Saturday. We don't want to be pitied. We want you to look at us, get inspired from us. Be united like we are and help us. They hope viewers will hear them, win or lose. Rachel Treisman, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your day with WBOR. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, a new report shows that where you live in Boston may be connected to how long you live. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant, providing drop-off corporate and community catering of farm-to-plate Caribbean American fare, freshfoodgeneration.com. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional local, long-distance office and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide, gentlegiant.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When I was a kid growing up in England, my mother's favorite BBC radio station broadcast a radio play every afternoon. My brother and I would usually get home from school a few minutes before the play was about to end. We knew better than to say a word. We'd slide into our usual seats at the kitchen table. Mom would put the kettle on, cut us each a slice of homemade cake. Then we would sit in silence until the play ended and my mother returned from whatever cozy farmhouse smuggler's den, foreign paradise, or planet she had been transported to. I get my love of radio and its ability to transport us anywhere from her. Thanks, Mom. If you're looking for a meaningful way to say thanks to your mom on Mother's Day and support great storytelling at the same time, consider Winston Flowers from WBUR. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Today on our podcast, The Common, Running While Black in Boston. Host Daryl C. Murphy talks with the head of the group Black Men Run Boston about his experiences here and what can be done to make running more inclusive. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Partly sunny and a high near 83 today. There's about a 30% chance of showers. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 63. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 80. Sunny but cooler on Sunday with a high of 68. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston at 722. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It only takes about 40 minutes to walk from Nubian Square in Roxbury to Copley Square. But the differences in the life expectancies of people who live in each of those squares is wide. That gap is detailed in a report out today from the Boston Public Health Commission. To learn more, WBUR's Martha Biebinger made the walk between the squares with Public Health Commissioner Dr. Bisola Ojikutu. I meet Dr. Ojikutu outside a community center near Nubian Square. So we're in Roxbury, and Roxbury is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Boston, a wonderful history associated with Roxbury. Founded in the 1630s, these days Boston dubs Roxbury the heart of black culture. But residents of this particular census tract within Roxbury have the lowest life expectancy in Boston, just shy of 69 years on average. 
In contrast, residents of a census tract in the Back Bay can expect to live to almost 92. It's really disturbing. Because Boston has formed task forces and poured resources into improving health disparities for more than two decades. The life expectancy gap is closing, but it's still 23 years. So much work has gone into um, improving life expectancy for individuals, and it, it is, it is just, it, it feels discouraging. But Ojikutu is on a mission to speed up progress. That starts with understanding what cuts life short for residents of the apartments that line Dudley Street, where we are walking, and the blocks beyond. Ojikutu says the root causes are here. A lot of people think that it's about what's happening in the clinics and the hospitals, you know, because that's how we see health. But health is really a broader concept. It includes mold in substandard housing that triggers asthma, higher rates of air pollution that contribute to many diseases, the absence of shade trees to clean and cool the air, poor transportation, more violent crime, and perhaps most importantly, differences in income and race. That's so critical to how people live. It's so critical to premature mortality, morbidity, as well as life expectancy. As we pass a paved vacant lot with a broken chain link fence, Ojikutu paints a picture of Nubian Square and the Back Bay area we'll visit shortly using numbers from the life expectancy report. 91% of Back Bay residents 25 or older have a college degree, compared to 44% in this area of Roxbury. If you look at median income, it's around 40,000. That's very low. Right, it is very low, and we'll see that when we compare it to Back Bay. It's 40,000 versus 140,000, so that's a stark difference. It's a difference that means there's little money for things like paint, plants, and repairs. I think what you're seeing physically here, as we go further down, you'll see, we call it physical dilapidation. Having trash around a neighborhood or violence, crime, are so important in terms of health and well-being. And when people are exposed to that, it really creates a sense of chronic stress. Ojikutu says chronic stress is a key piece of the life expectancy gap. It's fed by the daily struggle to pay bills, work more than one job, or search for work, and the steady stream of racist slights, insults, or worse. These two neighborhoods are deeply segregated. 82% of Back Bay residents are white, while 87% of Nubian Square area residents identify as black, Latino, Asian, or another race. And that chronic stress leads to higher blood pressure, it leads to higher cortisol levels, it leads to increased risk for cardiovascular disease, it leads to weight gain and risk of, of diabetes. So all these things are important in terms of health. There are few outdoor green spaces in this area of Roxbury where residents can go to relieve that stress or get exercise that improves health and longevity. My car's down that way a couple of blocks. Okay. And we're and meeting at uh, uh, Berkeley, Berkeley and, and Tom. Yep. We leave Roxbury and drive 1.6 miles to the regal brownstones of the Back Bay. Twice as many residents own their own home here as compared to near Nubian Square. Even the landscaping. The is landscaping like, is, is, is pristine. You don't see garbage on the street. It's really pleasant to walk around. I can imagine that people feel safe and have no qualms about, you know, exercising or being out after hours or at, at dusk or beyond. We pause under trees that line the Commonwealth Avenue Mall and enjoy a moment of calm, cool peace. This is what we were talking about, the physical spaces that contribute to health and wellness. It really is different from that particular area that we were in. 
Ojikutu has a big question. Do Bostonians care enough about the dramatic differences in schools, housing, neighborhoods, and life opportunities that create this nearly quarter century difference in years of life? Do they care enough to do something? In this incredibly resource-rich city, we still have these persistent challenges. We have people dying before they should. And I think the only way that we will make a difference is if we do something that really is radically different and we work together to change these dynamics. That's the planning Ojikutu hopes this report will inspire. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Welcome to Friday. You've made it through the week. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, Turkish, vo- Turkish voters go to the polls Sunday in what some are calling the most challenging election President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has faced in more than two decades. It's 729. We're two days away from Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration is being sued over its new asylum restrictions announced ahead of last night's expiration of Title 42. The changes make it more difficult for migrants crossing the border illegally to qualify for asylum. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas talking about one of the changes. People who arrive at the border without using a lawful pathway will be presumed ineligible for asylum. Groups including the American Civil Liberties Union argue that change is not lawful. They're taking legal action in California. The White House says President Biden's meeting with congressional leaders to talk about raising the debt ceiling is being pushed back from today to next week. New research looks at learning loss in elementary and middle schools in the U.S. during the coronavirus pandemic. Here's NPR's Corey Turner. The average student in grades third through eighth missed half a year of math. And in reading, they missed a quarter of a year. And that's according to researchers at Harvard's Center for Education Policy Research and Stanford's Educational Opportunity Project. Now, not surprisingly, wealth and poverty played a big role here. By last year, a student in the poorest 10% of districts had missed twice as much math learning as her peers in the richest districts. Researchers say virtual classes compounded the learning loss. This is NPR News. From WBUR, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
The Wesley School Committee is asking for the state's help to prevent a teacher strike amid ongoing contract negotiations. Committee members tell state labor officials they believe the teachers' union is planning a strike for Monday. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts, but that hasn't stopped educators in districts like Malden, Haverhill, and Woburn from striking this year. Boston City Councilors are working to come up with a new voting district map ahead of this fall's election. A federal judge this week rejected last year's proposal, saying the council focused improperly on race. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell has more on the legal case. The judge ruled that councilors erred by appearing to make race a predominant factor in their plan. Discrimination attorney Ana Munoz explains that while the Voting Rights Act allows district boundaries to consider race, it has to be balanced with other concerns. Traditionally, we haven't seen minority leadership in this city in all kinds of power structures, right? So those tensions aren't going away. And what the city council has to figure out now is how to address those tensions while still being in compliance with the Constitution and this judge's order. Nomination papers for the upcoming election are due in less than two weeks. City officials have to decide whether they can finalize a new map before then or whether they'll have to push back the deadline. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. A plan to revitalize Boston's Mattapan neighborhood is getting the green light. It was approved yesterday by the Boston Planning and Development Agency. It includes adding more green space to the neighborhood. It would also let homeowners add extra housing units to their properties. Mayor Michelle Wu says the plan is meant to increase generational wealth for residents of color without pushing them out of the neighborhood. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Celtics avoided elimination last night in Philadelphia. They beat the Sixers 95-86. to That forces a deciding Game 7 in their playoff series that will be held Sunday at the Garden. The Red Sox begin a six-game homestand tonight as they host the St. Louis Cardinals. And the Patriots' schedule for the upcoming season is out. They'll open the season at home on September 10th against the Eagles. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with highs in the low 80s. There's a slight chance of rain. Tonight it falls to a low in the 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the upper 70s. Cooler on Sunday in the upper 60s under sunny skies. It's 64 degrees in Boston. At 734, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has led his country for 20 years, and he's seeking another five-year term in election Sunday. He was once seen as a reformer, but over the years, he's amassed more and more power and jailed critics. Now, he faces public outrage over his handling of a deep economic crisis and the country's slow response to February's devastating earthquakes. NPR's Peter Kenyon traveled to Turkey's Black Sea coast, where Erdogan made a combative campaign appearance. 
On stage at an arena in the city of Ordu, Erdogan attacked his main rival with an intensity that underscored how close the race appears to be. Without providing credible evidence, Erdogan tried to link opposition candidate Kemal Kilic Darolu to pro-Kurdish militants who have been battling Turkish security forces for decades. Erdogan said Kilic Darolu takes his orders from Kandil, a mountainous area in northern Iraq where the group has bases. While we are on the path of Turkey's century, together with Ordu, some people are trying to undermine Turkey, he said. Adding, quote, where does the instruction come from? Kandil. They turn to Kandil and say, we will release all your members in prison. At another rally, Erdogan had played a video, quickly branded a deep fake, which appeared to show Kurdish militants singing the theme song of Kilic Durolu's political party. Erdogan also attacked the opposition coalition, made up of six parties from across the political spectrum, for supporting LGBTQ rights. Erdogan said the opposition doesn't support what he called the national values of our nation. He then named all six of the opposition parties in the coalition, calling each one, quote, LGBTist. The crowd cheered Erdogan's applause lines and waved the flags of the ruling Justice and Development Party. But people started to leave while the president was still speaking, and those approached by a reporter didn't have much to say. Erdogan was propelled to power in part because of the after-effects of a deadly earthquake in 1999, which killed more than 17,000 people and depressed the economy. Now he's facing widespread criticism for his own government's response to this year's devastating earthquake that killed some 50,000 people and left millions homeless. Analyst Soli Özel at Istanbul's Kaderhas University says after leading during Turkey's economic good times, lately Erdogan has presided over a currency crisis and soaring inflation that have Turkish families struggling to make ends meet. Well, after 20 years in power and quite frankly in the middle of a major economic crisis where a big chunk of the Turkish population is getting impoverished with the total mess in fighting the after effects of the devastating earthquakes of 6 February this year, it is quite remarkable that Mr. Erdogan's loyal followers are still at around um, 35 to 40% level. Erdogan has also had contentious relations with the U.S. and Turkey's other NATO allies. Analyst Sibel Aktay at the Chicago Council for Global Affairs says it's also important to remember that Erdogan's standing is in large part due to the government's control of the media and silencing of opposition opinions. The limitations on free speech that have become outrageous in the last couple of years, especially after the failed coup attempt of 2016, these are some of the sort of scare tactics of the government to curtail dissenting voices. That's another issue voters may be considering, Erdogan's impact on Turkey's democracy as he concentrated power in his own office. If no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote Sunday, a runoff is scheduled for May 28th. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, in Ordu on Turkey's Black Sea coast. With the summer travel season approaching, here's something to think about. That do not disturb sign you might hang on your hotel door, it's at the heart of a fierce labor fight going on behind the scenes at hotels across the U.S. And Pierre's Andrea Chu explains. More than 100 hotel workers and supporters marched in a circle around Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. last February. Clean grounds! 
every day. They were calling on the D.C. Council to extend a citywide requirement that hotels clean rooms daily unless a guest opts out. It's an issue the union Unite Here has been pressing since the pandemic. We are the During COVID, a lot of hotel guests didn't want housekeeping to enter their rooms out of fear of the virus. So hotels didn't need as many housekeeping staff. Now the union is pushing to make daily cleaning standard practice once again, both to preserve jobs that are mostly held by women of color and to ensure that the job itself doesn't become even more taxing than it already is. Because a room that hasn't been cleaned in days? The day you check out, that room is terrible. Chandra Anderson has worked a couple housekeeping jobs in Baltimore, including at a hotel that was only cleaning rooms every three days. So much trash, and you know, you never know what you're going to see. This was not a big issue before the pandemic, but since 2020, the union's been fighting for daily room cleaning in cities across the country, from D.C. to Houston to Honolulu. It's doing so through contract negotiations in some places and legislative efforts in others. The latest battleground, a key one, Nevada. Good afternoon, and thank you so much. State Uh, Senator Marilyn Dondero Loop, a Democrat, introduced a bill this spring to repeal a 2020 health and safety law that included a daily room cleaning requirement. This was back when scientists had said the COVID virus could live on surfaces for days. The union argued frequent cleaning was safer for everyone. But times have changed. It's time to sunset a COVID house cleaning policy that served its purpose but outlived its necessity. This week, Dondero Loop's bill cleared the Nevada Assembly and now awaits the governor's signature. The union had strongly opposed the bill, warning that if hotels aren't required to clean rooms daily, they will cut back, putting profits over jobs. It is true that hotel executives have talked up plans to save on labor, including in housekeeping. But Aisha Molino of MGM Resorts testified that MGM is just responding to guest preferences. More than 40% of guests at their Las Vegas resorts Decline cleaning this past year, she said, nearly double what it was before COVID. That means millions of our guests have been declining daily housekeeping. In Nevada and nationally, the number of people working in hotel housekeeping is down compared to before the pandemic. And travelers have noticed. You've probably noticed. Now, Aisha Molino from MGM said they are trying to hire. But competition for workers is a problem. It's not a matter of us trying to have fewer. It's that we can't rather attract enough. The union says the problem is cyclical. With fewer housekeepers on staff, it's a less attractive job. Union housekeepers testified about feeling scared alone on a floor of one of those mega resorts on the Vegas Strip. They spoke of co-workers who'd been attacked by guests and of the toll that heavy cleaning takes on their bodies. In Nevada, the union says it won't give up the fight. It plans to raise daily room cleaning in contract negotiations later this year. For now, its message to guests, you're paying for first-class service. Why not use it? Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR, and WBUR is partnering with Winston Flowers so you can send the perfect gift for Mother's Day and support our independent journalism. This is a big fundraiser for us and an easy way to do two good things at once. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, we learn about the effort to protect endangered moths on Martha's Vineyard. 
In your forecast, low 80s today under partly sunny skies that may give way to a few showers. Low 60s tonight, then a great weekend. Mostly sunny and upper 70s on Saturday. Sunny and upper 60s on Sunday. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Russell's Garden Center with unique Mother's Day gift ideas, flowers, jewelry, clothing, bird feeders, and plants. Russell's Route 20 Wayland. And Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at loomissales.com. A 95-acre ExxonMobil fuel tank farm in Everett is back on the market. Exxon representatives tell the Boston Globe the company has already solicited bids for the site near the Encore Casino. A local developer had planned to build apartments and a manufacturing building on the property. That deal fell apart late last summer for undisclosed reasons. Middleborough will soon have its first brewery thanks to a new state loan. The $275,000 tax-exempt loan will help Harper Lane Brewery buy equipment it needs to open its taproom this summer. Mass Development says its loan program has helped many other breweries in the state, including Night Shift, Treehouse, and Notch Brewing. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Up to one million plant and animal species are at risk of going extinct. And according to the United Nations, a lot of that could happen in the next few decades. To stem the losses, the U.N. wants to conserve 30 percent of the planet's land and water for wildlife. And with a goal that big, it can help to start small. WBUR's Barbara Moran tells us about a conservation project aimed at protecting rare moths on Martha's Vineyard. It's probably safe to say that most people don't visit Martha's Vineyard for the moths. But maybe that's because they've never met a moth like this one, the Melsheimer's sack bearer. It's a great, great animal. It's a gorgeous animal. It's, uh, I mean, honestly, the pattern on its wings looks like a sunset. It's beautiful. Paul Goldstein is the curator of moths and butterflies at the Smithsonian. He says the moth is called a sack bearer because it makes itself a little sleeping bag out of leaves. And one of the few places it lives in New England is Martha's Vineyard. It's just an amazing place. There are examples of habitats out there that are unique or the best of their kind in the region. One rare vineyard habitat is this one, a woodsy 97-acre site known as the Medicine Lots. It's home to 16 species of rare moths. The Nature Conservancy's Mike Whittemore says one reason for the site's moth appeal is a rare geological feature a glacially formed depression called a frost bottom. 
Just a short walk down here. A frost bottom forms a microclimate because cold air settles down at night. The bottom of these depressions can get frost all year long, even in summer. The one the Nature Conservancy is restoring here is a shallow depression about 500 feet wide. These frost bottoms, combined with the sandy soil, create the perfect environment for one of the moth's favorite foods, a shrubby tree called scrub oak. Scrub oak is a host plant for a lot of rare and uncommon Lepidopter species, so butterflies and moths. The frost can kill the baby leaves of the scrub oak, forcing it to push out new leaves several times a year. Moths love this. The moths really like the new growth to feed on because it's very tender, it's high in nitrogen, it's low in tannin content, and so it's the perfect situation for a lot of these rare moths. Here's the problem. Because people have suppressed fire in this frost bottom for 100 plus years, other trees like the pitch pines and the white oaks have gotten too tall. Their canopy blocks the sun, and the scrub oak doesn't get enough light. The way to help the habitat is to cut down a lot of the tall trees. We're going to wrap around here. You can get some sort of good vistas from out this way. Whittemore walks out of the woods onto the edge of the frost bottom. It's littered with freshly cut tree stumps. On the far side of the field, a backhoe lifts branches and feeds them into a wood chipper. Whittemore says it may seem extreme, but it's necessary to preserve the habitat. We, we kind of need to come in here and do this management. Um, and if we don't, we'll shade out some of the species that are rare and it'll create a different microclimate. Uh, and that wouldn't be good for biodiversity on the island. It makes you wonder, all this for moths? Yes, a lot of moths are pests, but it turns out some moths can be the linchpin of an ecosystem. Uli Lorimer is director of horticulture for the Native Plant Trust. Moths have a, an outsized ecological role to play. Uh, they're not just the little brown things that come to your porch light. They're pollinators, he says, and a vital food source for bats. And maybe most important, without moths, there would be no songbirds. If you have a breeding pair of uh, black-capped chickadees in your yard, they'll need somewhere north of 6,000 caterpillars in a season in order to successfully rear a brood of chicks. And the bulk of that comes from moth caterpillars. Like other ecologists familiar with the medicine lots restoration, Lorimer says that the project is likely to succeed and protect the rare moths. But he points out that ecological restoration isn't just about helping one plant or one animal. It's about restoring all the connections in a rare ecosystem and learning to appreciate each little interlocking piece. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, Dee Barnes, the former host of the influential Fox TV show Pump It Up, reflects on 50 years of hip-hop history. And at 810, we'll have the latest on what's happening along the southern U.S. border after pandemic-era border restrictions known as Title 42 ended last night. It's 7.50. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? 
your siblings, your joy, your curiosity. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Border officials are working to process thousands of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border now that the pandemic-era restriction called Title 42 has expired. Planned debt ceiling talks today between the White House and congressional Republicans have been postponed. And the Boston Planning and Development Agency has approved a plan to turn a Dorchester hotel into apartments for unhoused people. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Temperatures rise to the low 80s today, and it'll be partly cloudy. It's 64 degrees in Boston at 752. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. It started at block parties in the Bronx, and it grew into a global force. We're talking about hip-hop. It has now been around for 50 years. And my next guest had an amazing vantage point where she watched it bloom. They said it was going to be a fad. It wasn't here to stay. In 1989, Dee Barnes was hired to host a rap show for the brand new Fox network. It was called Pump It Up. It became an essential launching pad for some of the foundational voices of hip hop. Yo, this is the man right here, Ice Cube of NWA. How did y'all become the ghetto boys? So how was the LL Cool Day of today? Back right here on Pump It Up with De La Soul. We got Morty by Nation from the soundtrack, Juice. But one of the artists she interviewed violently assaulted her. Dee Barnes pressed charges. And she says that effectively ended her career. More on that in a moment. But first, let's go back to when Barnes first fell in love with hip-hop. She grew up in New York City as rap was taking over. She'd hear groups of older kids practicing in the park. And I was like, you know, what, what's going on over there? See the little circle and the beatbox and, you know, poetry. I thought it was just poetry at first, but then I started to realize these were lines that they were doing to a song. And that's when it hit me. You know, I wanted to be part of that. How did you get to perform? Was it mainly like in the park? For me, for my generation in particular, it was the roller skating rink. We all went on, you know, Fridays and Saturdays. I remember in particular, we would see actually groups that would come perform. One of my earliest memories of that would be um, Davy D. I don't know if you remember David D. One for the treble, two for the bass. Come on, David D. Let's rock this place. Oh my God. Remember that? One for the treble, two for the bass. Come on, David D. Let's rock this place. D. Barnes took that inspiration to the West Coast. She went to California after high school, and with her friend Rose Hutchinson, she formed a duo called Body and Soul. Hip-hop, hoping it not stop, giving the crowd a notion for motion to they drop. 
Body and Soul made a record, but it was never released. They found themselves at an impasse with their recording label over creative control. Their definition of what women should be, should look like, the name of the group was Body and Soul. They wanted us to be more body than soul. You were so young. I have to yeah. point out, you were just, what, barely in your teens. I'm sorry, I'm not going to yeah. call you out. But oh, it's true. did you even um, have the language to say, you know, now we would call it the male gaze, that you want right. to create art for the male gaze. We want to create art that expresses who we are. We were all about the, you know, the upliftment of our people. <laughs> and they called us radical. So what did they more. want you to rap about, sex? Yes. Subliminally, sex and relationships, but not sex politics. relationships, and maybe heartbreak, and mm-hmm. we were like, "That's not that's not that's what not women what's on are our all. minds right now, or that's we, not all that women are about." Exactly. In the middle of all that, Fox offered Dee Barnes the opportunity to try her hand at TV. So, at the age of nineteen, she accepted the job as host of Pump It Up. She says she saw it as more than just an interview program. I was like, man, this is part of the movement. Now I'm of age where I can, you know, record our history. I think it also has to do with me, with the community-based upbringing, you know, like Black Panthers. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, we give back to the community. I just was like, I got to document this. What are some of the folks you interviewed? Is there somebody from back in the day who you think didn't get their due, who should have been bigger? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Especially women in particular. And usually everybody just mentions the men, but the women were right out there. And I'm talking women like, you know, MC Shyrock, uh, MC Debbie D, Lisa Lee. Mercedes Lady. The sequence, you know? I mean, there's so, you know, so many, so many, so many. So I, I don't want to dwell on it, but I do feel I have to ask about mm-hmm. a pain point. When it well-publicized at the time, Dr. Dre attacked you at a mm-hmm. party, physically attacked you, mm-hmm. and you pressed charges. He pleaded mm-hmm. no contest. He paid a fine. But do you think this came to overshadow your career? I definitely feel like it, it overshadowed my career. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not just about that trauma. But any woman that speaks up about any trauma to any harm that's been done to her, especially black women, you know, Malcolm X said it best, we're the most disrespected, the most unprotected, the most neglected in, in America. Do you think it's you know? because you pressed charges that, that had such a powerful impact on your career? Or do you think it's just the fact that you stood up for yourself? And- I think it's both. I was uniquely punished, you know, because, in, you know, you're not supposed to snitch. You're not supposed to talk to the police. That's like a a hood 101. But at the same time, if I didn't do something, I felt like, you know, the next victim would not be as lucky. And that's really a horrible choice of words because I was not lucky. Maybe lucky in the sense that I didn't die that night. We are speaking now in the wake of like the Me Too movement and other Mm -hmm. powerful individuals who have been brought to account for their conduct. Do you think that the outcome would be the same, that your career would be so derailed because of it? I'm not sure. Women seem to still not be believed. We just had Megan Thee Stallion, who was shot, you know, could have died. And she was dragged through the mud, so to speak. 
from her peers and from, you know, the public. Not believed, not protected. How has things changed? I don't know. You know, she did get justice as far as, you know, Tory's in jail for his crime. I did not have that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then it was a matter of who was making the most money at the time. And so people are going to side with the money. So as the opportunities kept coming for this one, opportunities were pulled away from me. It is a real thing when they say, you'll never work in this town again. That is Dee Barnes. As the host of the popular TV show Pump It Up, she chronicled the rise of hip-hop in the late 80s and early 90s. Dee Barnes, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It was great. All right, shout out to everybody. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Immigration advocates are suing the Biden administration over its new rules on asylum seekers. The old rules expired at midnight. It's Friday, May 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, the president of Ukraine says more weapons are needed for a spring counteroffensive against Russia. Also, children who are hurt, hurt others. Our job is not to give them a gun, but our job is to figure out how to help them heal. A growing number of doctors are pushing for gun violence among young people to be treated as a public health emergency. And this hour, we learn about the difficulties facing Boston officials as they race to draw new city council districts. How do you raise up minority groups while at the same time, you're not looking like or creating a record that you've just got race on the mind the whole time. Partly sunny in the 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Now that Title 42, the pandemic-related immigration policy that allowed officials to quickly expel people, has ended, immigrant advocates are suing the Biden administration over sharp new limits on asylum at the southern border. Texas Public Radio's Carolina Cuellar spoke with one immigrant who entered the U.S. before Title 42 expired. Antonio Carrera crossed into the United States Wednesday. Carrera says, the U.S. had released information that Title 42 was going to go away on May 11th. So he decided to cross before that to see if we could benefit while requesting asylum is more accessible. President Biden added new requirements for requesting asylum, and those who don't meet these new requirements face more extreme penalties. Carrera says the new policy will cause more harm to migrants. He says the government can expel them at once if they want to. And, he says, they won't be able to access asylum, as they do with Title 42. The Trump-era policy, which was left in place by the Biden administration, was lifted at midnight. I'm Carolina Cuellar in McAllen. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with a top Chinese diplomat this week. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the high-level talks are the first since a Chinese spy balloon was discovered flying over the continental U.S. earlier this year. 
White House officials say Sullivan met with China's top diplomat Wang Yi in Vienna to discuss several bilateral issues, including Taiwan and the war in Ukraine. A senior administration official described a substantive meeting that was, quote, one of the more candid and constructive discussions they've been a part of. They talked for about eight hours, stretched over the course of two days. The officials said both sides want to move past the spy balloon incident, which had led to a pause in relations. They instead sought common ground and talked about working together on mutual concerns, such as transnational narcotics. The official says Sullivan also raised names of specific prisoners the United States has concerns about. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. The former Marine who put Jordan Neely in a chokehold on the New York subway is expected in court today. Daniel Penny will be charged with second-degree murder. Police say Neely was acting erratically and harassing passengers but wasn't physically violent. Other passengers helped hold Neely down as Penny placed him in a chokehold and his death sparked days of protests. Activist Selena Trowell was at a demonstration last night. We need accountability and that comes from the mayor and the governor because his death is on their hands for legitimizing that type of murder. His family says he was homeless and had mental health issues. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Where you live in Boston could mean a 23-year difference in your life expectancy. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on a report out today from the Boston Public Health Commission. The report shows the lowest life expectancy, not quite 69 years, is in one section of Roxbury. The highest, almost 92, is in the Back Bay. Boston Public Health Commissioner Dr. Bizola Ojikutu says the difference is the wear and tear of environmental hazards, struggling to pay bills, feeling unsafe, and battling racism. And that chronic stress being a part of your lived experience is what is damaging to your lifespan. That damage includes greater risk of heart disease, diabetes, and mental health issues. Ojikutu is calling for major investments by hospitals, other nonprofits, employers, and government agencies to help close the gap. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Teachers in Worcester have reached a new contract deal. The school committee and city teachers say they've tentatively agreed to a new deal. It'll last through August of 2026. It includes pay and benefit upgrades and tuition reimbursement. The deal still needs a final vote from the union before it's officially approved. Officials expect demolition to start next week at the Newburyport chemical plant where an explosion killed one worker. City officials finished removing chemicals from the PCI synthesis facility yesterday. It's unclear how long demolition may take. The company says it's monitoring the area for any environmental impacts from the explosion. New Hampshire will continue as the only New England state where recreational marijuana use is illegal. The state's Republican-controlled Senate voted yesterday to reject legalizing cannabis. Governor Chris Sununu supported the legislation but said he didn't expect the bill to reach his desk. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at CertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. 
The Celtics beat the 76ers last night to keep their season alive. Boston won 95-86 in Philadelphia. The deciding Game 7 will be held on Sunday at the Garden. The Red Sox are back at Fenway tonight to play the St. Louis Cardinals. Partly sunny with a chance of showers today. It'll be in the 80s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall into the 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and near 80. Sunny again on Sunday and in the 60s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBOR. If your mom, wife, or daughter loves flowers, send them Winston Flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBOR a strong future. Choose from orchids, roses, or peonies for Mother's Day or get seasonal flowers every month. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at ScrippsNews.com forward slash TV. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. With the expiration of the pandemic-era border restrictions under Title 42, the Biden administration has a message for migrants seeking to cross the southern border illegally. Don't. Immigration policy this morning looks very different than it did yesterday. Those who enter the U.S. illegally could be banned from returning for at least five years, and repeat offenders could face prosecution. Here's what Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas had to say earlier this week. The lifting of the Title 42 public health order does not mean our border is open. In fact, it is the contrary. Our use of our immigration enforcement authorities under Title 8 of the United States Code means tougher consequences for people who cross the border illegally. Also, for many migrants who seek asylum at the southern border, they'll need to show they were turned down by a country they crossed first before asking the U.S. for asylum. Joining us now is Blas Nunez Neto. He's Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. He's speaking to us this morning via Skype. Um, Moments after that requirement went into effect last night, the ACLU filed a lawsuit to stop the rule, saying it, quote, closes off access to safety for the majority of people seeking asylum in the U.S. Uh, What is your response to that. Good morning, A. Uh, we believe that couldn't be further from the truth and that this is nothing like what the Trump administration did. You know, their efforts cut off all legal pathways to the U.S., including access to our ports of entry for asylum seekers and the refugee process. They categorically barred migrants from claiming asylum and they even separated families from young children at the border. Uh, You know, what we have done is really oversee a historic increase in lawful pathways to the U.S., including at our ports of entry through the CBP-1 application. We are allowing migrants to claim asylum, but placing what we believe are some common sense conditions on it. And we are also significantly expanding family reunification programs. But the thing is, yeah, Title VIII does not require a migrant who arrives at a point of entry for the first time and asks for asylum to show that they were denied asylum somewhere else first. So how does this rule square with Title VIII, which is the law of the land? Again, we believe it is well within our authorities. And what we are really trying to do here is incentivize migrants to use safe, lawful, and orderly pathways that, again, we have expanded dramatically over the last two years. But also, you know, there has to be a consequence at the border for individuals who continue uh, to cross irregularly despite having these options available to them. And, And what we are doing with this rule is really trying to disincentivize migrants from crossing irregularly and putting their lives in the hands of, you know, 
these uh, drug cartels and criminal organizations that are you know, fundamentally exploiting migrants to bring them here. But why isn't that something that Congress would have to add after the fact? Title Eight is in effect. It's always been in effect. Um, it seems like this is something added that isn't in Title Eight. Again, we think this is within our uh, statutory authorities, but you're absolutely right that we need Congress to act. The, the bottom line is that we are seeing these surges of migration now for all, you know going on 20 years under presidents of both political parties. Uh, you know, different administrations have tried to deal with this challenge through executive action, uh, you know, in different ways. Uh, we are obviously doing that ourselves. And that has invited uh, the courts to step in in ways that are, frankly, deeply unhelpful. And so at the end of the day, we are clear eyed that there is no lasting solution here that does not involve the U.S. Congress uh, stepping up. You know, we introduced comprehensive immigration reform on the first day of this administration. Uh, it has gone nowhere in Congress. We are, you know, reaching out to members from both sides of the party to really ask them to come together in a bipartisan way to solve this problem. And one more thing quickly, about 30 seconds to go. What is the federal government doing to help border communities deal with uh, any influx of migrants? You know, we do have a grant program that has supported uh, local communities and NGOs, uh, and Congress did increase funding for it last year. However, we recognize that it's a small fraction of what is uh, needed. And again, only Congress can really address this issue. That is Blas Nunez Neto, Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Thank you very much. Thank you, Abe. Ukraine's long-awaited spring counteroffensive against Russia is on hold. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says they're still waiting for more Western weapons to arrive. He spoke to the network of the European Broadcasting Union through an interpreter. We can advance with what we've got, and I think we can be successful. But we will lose a lot of people. I think that is unacceptable. We need to wait. We need a bit more time. Joining me now is Ben Hodges, the former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe. He's on the line via Skype. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Leila. So what do you make of this delay? Does it hurt the chances of this counterattack being successful? Uh, actually, I, I would not characterize it as a delay. Mm. Um, I, I think the, the idea that this was a spring offensive is something that was created by us, you know, the bubble outside of the actual Ukrainian general staff. I don't believe they ever put a specific date uh, or season on it. Uh, there, there's three conditions that they'll um, have to meet before they tell President Zelensky they're ready to go. Number one, are their own forces strong enough uh, ready enough, trained enough to be, to be successful. Uh, the second condition is, are Russian forces degraded enough, disrupted enough uh, for the Ukrainian attack to be successful? And then the third condition, I think, is tied to the ground. Is it dry enough to enable or support the movement of hundreds of armored vehicles? Those are the three conditions that I think they'll, they'll want to meet before they tell the president they're ready to go. You know, there have been, as you mentioned, a lot of expectations around this planned offensive from allies who are funneling a lot of weaponry, uh, costly weaponry into the country. And Ukrainian officials were tempering those expectations. Ukraine's defense minister said to The Washington Post, most people are waiting for something huge and they may be disappointed. What do you expect from this offensive? What needs to happen? Yeah, well, I I think, uh, first of all, the Ukrainian general staff has impressed me with how uh, skilled and disciplined they are. They they do a great job of protecting information. We know more about the Russians than we do about the Ukrainian forces, as it should be. I should not know, as an old retired guy, 
what their plans are. Um, I actually expect, however, that they will be quite successful. Um, they've been training hard. Um, the West has provided a lot of a, a very good equipment, but also the Ukrainians have uh, worked hard to build up several armored brigades uh, that will be used to, to penetrate these long, linear Russian defenses. That's why the fighting at Bakhmut was so important, because they were able to, to keep their armored forces out of there and still allow the Russians to bleed themselves there. Uh, that sort of sacrifice is necessary to ensure a very successful attack when it does start. Well, it sounds like you think a delay is a delay. If it's needed for a more successful operation, then it's needed. But if this counterattack, when it does happen, doesn't end in significant gains with Ukrainians getting back a lot of territory, do the Ukrainians risk losing some of the Western support vis-a-vis weapons and training as Europe and the U.S. assess how much they can continue to give? Well, this is an important point, and I think uh, there there will be some concern about that. I was I was happy to hear that the president yesterday or the day before said, you know, American support is not tied to whether or not this uh, offensive is going to achieve some sort of great success. I mean, that would give give lie to the reasons that we're doing this to begin with. This is about helping uh, uh, stop Russia from its uh, aggression holding them accountable for the terrible war crimes, uh, the violations of sovereignty, uh, violations of international law. So if, we, if we're if we serious about those reasons for doing this, and also, of course, the Chinese are watching to see if we're really serious about this, then I, I don't think our support is tied directly to whether or not the attack is a smashing success. Ben Hodges is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General. He joined us via Skype. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the privilege. All this week, teachers have been getting treats, trinkets, and a 25% discount on Crocs for Teacher Appreciation Week. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson thanked his own teacher as he signed the law dedicating federal funds to elementary and secondary education for the first time. This law later morphed into the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001. In this one-room schoolhouse, Miss Katie Dedrich taught eight grades at one and the same time. Come over here, Miss Katie, and sit by me, will you? Johnson was the son of a tenant farmer in Texas, and he credited his public education with getting him out of poverty. From our very beginnings as a nation, we have felt a very fierce commitment to the ideal of education for everyone. Johnson himself worked as a high school teacher before getting into politics. He signed the bill with Miss Dedrich beside him. She became Johnson's teacher starting when he was just four years old in the schoolhouse near his hometown of Stonewall, Texas. Now, Layla, I didn't uh, end up becoming president uh, just yet, but I do owe a lot to one teacher, and that's uh, Sister Catherine. Last semester of my senior year, despite going to after-school tutoring, I was failing math class. <laughs> and the day before she had to turn in my grade, Sister Catherine sat me down and swore me to secrecy. I'm not kidding. Swore me to secrecy about what she was about to do. She said she had never seen anyone try so hard but fail so badly, so she was going to pass me so I could walk with the rest of the seniors at graduation. There were only 100 seniors, so it would have been noticed and humiliating if I wasn't at graduation. So thanks, Sister Catherine. Wow. <laughs> wow. Thank God we don't need math in this job, eh? <laughs> 
Um, for me, I think it's Michael Dodd, Mr. Dodd. He taught me music from elementary to middle school. He taught me how to love music. And so I was like eight, nine years old singing Bob Dylan, the Beatles, John Denver. That's the music that he taught us to love. So thank you, Mr. Dodd. And also my mom and my sister are both teachers. So thank you to all the teachers, including them. Yeah, and I got uh, family that are teachers too. So to all the teachers out there everywhere, thanks for everything that you do. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, new research paints the clearest picture yet of just how much learning students missed during the pandemic and what it may take to make up the lost ground. And it's Friday, and that means a conversation from StoryCorps. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Deepa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station that has your back. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. It's going to be a slow commute for some T-riders this weekend. Buses will replace red line trains between Broadway and both Braintree and Ashmont. There will also be no commuter rail service on any lines between South Station and Braintree. Partly sunny and a high near 83 to get today. There's about a 30% chance of showers tonight. Partly cloudy with a low around 63. Then it's the weekend. It'll be mostly sunny with a high near 80 on Saturday and sunny but cooler on Sunday with a high of 68. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester. Featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean. Offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Historic in magnitude. That's how new research describes just how much learning students missed during the pandemic. The researchers reviewed a mountain of data covering nearly 8,000 school districts to create the clearest picture yet of which students were hit hardest and why. 
NPR's Corey Turner joins us now. Corey, how much learning do researchers think uh, students have missed out on? Yeah, the average student A in grades third through eighth missed half a year of math. And in reading, they missed a quarter of a year. And that's according to researchers at Harvard's Center for Education Policy Research and Stanford's Educational Opportunity Project. Now, not surprisingly, wealth and poverty played a big role here. By last year, a student in the poorest 10% of districts had missed twice as much math learning as her peers in the richest districts. Researchers say students of color were also more likely to be hit hard. And obviously, these differences come on top of already large opportunity gaps between our most and our least privileged students. Yeah. And what about schools being remote for long periods of time? I mean, what effect did that have? Yeah, a big one. I put that question to Tom Kane. He's one of the researchers and a professor at Harvard. There's no question in places where schools were remote or hybrid longer, students lost more ground. And that was particularly true in high poverty districts. So for example, A, in districts where schools were remote for nearly all of the 2020-21 school year, students missed nearly twice as much math as districts that had stayed largely in person. But this is this is key here. School closures were only part of the story. The researchers found other community level factors beyond school that also affected how much kids did or didn't learn. Other factors, what kind of other factors? Well, so students missed more learning in places with higher COVID death rates and where adults were more likely to say they were feeling depressed or anxious about the pandemic. On the other hand, students missed less learning in places where people were more likely to vote or respond to the U.S. Census. In their brief, the researchers explained that one by saying, living in a community where more people trust the government appears to have been an asset to children during the pandemic. Uh, they also found that social activities, like going out to dinner, or meeting a friend in public, were intertwined with kids' learning. Uh, Tom Kane told me, basically, the, the places where life was more disrupted saw bigger losses. And finally, A, they looked at earlier test score drops before the pandemic. You know, when a, a single district may have been hit by a local flu outbreak or maybe too many snow days. They wanted to see if kids naturally made up that ground over time. Here's Sean Reardon. He's another one of the researchers on the project and a professor of education and sociology at Stanford. And what was I think, striking and surprising and a little sobering was that when there's a big decline in one year, those cohorts don't seem to catch up for the three or four years that we can follow them into the future. So Reardon warns parents and public officials shouldn't just assume that schools can make up for all that lost ground because history shows in those test scores without a concerted effort, much of it will just stay lost. Man. All right. To NPR's Corey Turner. Corey, thanks. You're welcome, A. Time now for StoryCorps. After Heidi Koss gave birth to her daughter, Alora, she suffered from postpartum depression. Alora is now 14 years old, and she spoke to her mom about her experience. And a note for our listeners, this story mentions suicide. I was really looking forward to having a baby and very excited, but it wasn't quite what I expected. How did you expect it? I guess I just didn't realize like how trapped People can feel like I had nightmares all the time. What kind of nightmares did you have? Tornadoes ripping you from my arms. I would wake up in this panicked sweat and I would have to check on you constantly. I went to my doctor and he said, well, I could 
prescribe you an antidepressant, but you'd have to quit breastfeeding. I didn't realize at the time that that wasn't very accurate. And so I kind of suffered along. Who was there to help you through all of that? Well, Daddy, but he was also trying to finish his PhD and working two jobs, so I was pretty isolated. I was counting the moments so that I could get a break. There were times when I felt like I would just try to hold it together all day while you were awake, and then when you would go to sleep for the night, that was kind of my safe time to totally fall apart and let it all out. Did you ever attempt suicide? I attempted suicide four times. All four of them were at night. I always made sure that you were taken care of. I pumped and I pumped milk and I stored milk in case I wouldn't be here anymore. But once I got properly treated, I've never had those thoughts again, honey. I want you to know that I'm okay now. I'm never going to leave you like that. I'm just glad that you didn't. You were the reason I stayed here on this earth. I could not imagine not being able to stay with you and be with you and see you grow up. Yeah. I know it's not your fault because a lot of mothers go through postpartum depression in the future if I ever have a baby. I definitely want to be there for you. And and you'll help me. And help you. I'm glad that we're here for each other. That was Heidi Koss with her daughter, Alora, at StoryCorps in Wenatchee, Washington. Heidi is now a therapist who specializes in postpartum depression. Their conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now, so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Welcome to Friday. You've made it through the week. I'm Rupa Shunoy. Coming up after today's top stories, why an increasing number of doctors say gun violence among young people should be seen as a public health emergency. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile. All from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The pandemic border restriction known as Title 42 expired last night with tens of thousands of migrants gathered at the U.S. southern border. Active duty American troops are helping federal agents along the Rio Grande to deal with the large numbers. Martin Sandoval is with Brownsville Police in Texas. We actually do not know the actual numbers, and that is the reason why we're out here to show that, hey, you know, we're here, we're, we're ready. 
Members of the Texas National Guard have also been deployed by Governor Greg Abbott. Daniel Penny turned himself in to authorities in New York this morning to face criminal charges in the chokehold death of a man on a subway train. Samantha Max, with member station WNYC, says Penny is expected to face a charge of second-degree manslaughter. In New York State, that means someone recklessly caused the death of another person. It's a Class C felony. A witness who recorded part of the incident on his cell phone has said Penny restrained Neely in a chokehold after Neely started yelling on the subway that he was tired, hungry, and didn't care if he died or went to jail. Penny's attorneys have said the 24-year-old former Marine was trying to protect himself and fellow passengers. They also said he didn't mean to kill anyone. Neely's death has sparked protests in the city and calls for more affordable housing and mental health care. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in New York. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Boston will turn a hotel into nearly 100 studio apartments for unhoused people. The Boston Planning and Development Agency last night approved the conversion of the Comfort Inn on Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester. Barbara Trevison of the Pine Street Inn says her organization will do background checks and help with tenants' needs. We have staff, case managers who connect people with things like, you know, health care, mental health services, job training, jobs, potentially volunteer activities, just to try to get them to, to sort of integrate back into the community. Some neighbors have expressed concerns that the facility could lead to more crime and drug use. Opponents of the project have 30 days, days to appeal the vote. The Massachusetts State Senate plans to start paying its fellows this summer. Documents obtained by the Boston Globe show money was earmarked for a paid internship program, but it hasn't been used until now. Senate officials say the pandemic delayed the use of the money. There are no plans in the House to offer similar paid internships. Pollution, climate change, and habitat loss have put one million plant and animal species at risk of extinction worldwide. That's according to the United Nations. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports on a local effort by the Nature Conservancy to protect one habitat on Martha's Vineyard. The site, known as the Medicine Lots, contains unique habitat for some rare and threatened species. Restoring the land will also connect a state forest to the Long Point Preserve, creating a continuous wildlife corridor. Mike Whittemore is the Nature Conservancy's stewardship manager for Cape Cod and the islands. It's only 97 acres, but it has 19 rare uh, species, state-listed species here, so it's a real biological hotspot. The 19 rare species include a bird, a beetle, a bee, and 16 species of moths. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics remain alive in the playoffs. They beat the Sixers last night 95-86 to in Philadelphia. The deciding Game 7 of their series will be held Sunday at the Garden. The Red Sox will be back at Fenway tonight. They're hosting the St. Louis Cardinals. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with highs in the low 80s. There's a slight chance of rain. Tonight it falls to a low in the 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the upper 70s. Cooler on Sunday in the upper 60s under sunny skies. It's 66 degrees in Boston at 834.
We're two days away from Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scriptsnews.com forward slash TV. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. A gunman shooting rampage that killed eight people at a mall in Allen, Texas last week was horrific, but not unique. Since then, there have been well over a dozen mass shootings in the U.S. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. Firearms have become the number one cause of death for kids and teens. So is it now time to treat gun violence as a public health crisis? Our colleague Michelle Martin reached out to Dr. Deborah Prathrow-Stith, who has played a key role in defining youth violence as a public health issue. Guns in America play a huge role. Guns play a huge role in suicides as well. When you look at the homicide rate, of the United States compared to other peer countries, it's very clear that the presence of guns is probably the most outstanding variable. And what about the racial differences here in the kinds of violence that different people are subjected to? Suicide is more common in white America and homicide more common in uh, Black America. And violence is learned behavior. We don't come out of the womb ready to commit suicide or homicide. And I think as a culture, understanding that children who are hurt, hurt others or hurt themselves. And our job is not to give them a gun, but our job is to figure out how to help them heal. So what does it mean exactly to take a public health approach to gun violence? It's really understanding what are the risk factors. How do we help children who are hurt? How do we help them heal from the anger, the guilt, the pain, but also give them the strategies to move forward? Is it about keeping people busy? Is it about what, giving them different ways to blow off steam? I'll never forget a um, football player, and he said, I really don't like football that much, but when my friends say, hey, come hang out with me, I can say, man, I'm so tired because I just had practice. So he had developed his own strategies for dealing with the peer pressure around issues of fighting. So it is busy. It is purpose. It is opportunity. Those are the things that are very, very important for kids in the thick, if you will. It just seems like our conversations around gun violence in the current moment just immediately go to politics. Is there a way that we could talk about this that you think would be productive? I would start with where we were successful in the past, and that was in banning assault weapons. 
that from 1994 to 2004, those who wanted guns had guns during that period. They just weren't able to buy these high-powered assault weapons. So I would say we've done it before. We can do it again, even with the ban on assault weapons, and just make our children safer. That's Dr. Deborah Prothrow-Stith. She's dean and professor of medicine at Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Voters in Thailand will go to the polls on Sunday for an election that will see the military and its proxy parties trying to extend their nine-year-long rule. The opposition aims to end it. NPR's Michael Sullivan has this report from Bangkok. The leading candidates for prime minister include two former coup leaders, a health minister who just decriminalized dope, and the heir to a political dynasty whose father and aunt were both deposed by the military and are now in exile. Then there's the Harvard-educated businessman whose progressive party hopes to reclaim what he calls the lost decade under military-backed rule. My name is Pita Limcharanrat. I'm the prime ministerial candidate for Thailand from Move Forward Party. Move Forward's predecessor, Future Forward, burst onto the scene ahead of the 2019 election, a brand new party that took aim at the military and the monarchy and finished a surprising third. That alarmed the royalist establishment, whose courts quickly dissolved the party and banned its leaders from politics. The rebranded party's message is simple. Demilitarize, demonopolize, and decentralize. That's how you democratize Thailand. That's the end game. Take military out of politics so that we don't have military coup every seven years on average. Sounds simple, but it's not, says Titinang Pong Sudarak, a political scientist at Bangkok's Chulalongkorn University. In Thailand's constitutional framework, the military and the monarchy have been above and beyond reproach, above and beyond the constitution, and Move Forward is trying to constitutionalize them, making military and the monarchy accountable, transparent. Reforms are overdue, and Move Forward is, is calling out for it, and that's why it's, it's gaining a lot of traction and momentum. <laughs> It's a message that resonates with young people in particular, the majority at this Move Forward rally in Bangkok. 29-year-old office worker, Warantorn Jariyakonkul. Because it's only party that dares to say the truth, and they do it like um, the straight way, say it straight and act straight. Saying it straight, acting straight, is part of what got Move Forward's predecessor dissolved in 2020, and that did not go over well. Many furious, suddenly disenfranchised young Thais protested in large numbers, calling for the military-backed government to step down and for curbs on the power of the monarchy. But eventually the protests were snuffed out, in large part by employing harsh les majeste laws that prohibit any criticism of the monarchy and can result in prison terms of up to 15 years. Hundreds have been charged since, including 21-year-old Tatawan Tantulanon. There's no future now, and I'm not sure that's going uh, to be future for the young generation. If the political system remains the same, I think we're going to die. Tantawan and her friend's alleged crime was taking a poll at a mall 
asking people if they were inconvenienced by royal motorcades. They were released on bail after going on a hunger strike. Young people, like her, are helping fuel move-forward surge in the polls. It's not likely to win, but could do well enough to join a coalition government if it's not dissolved again. Party leader Pita says he's ready. I have my succession plan. I have my pipeline of talents. The worst case scenario, if we were going to be kneecapped again, the next 10 people who will take over the, the party management to make sure that our journey keeps going forward. So if it doesn't work this time, it will work next time. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Bangkok. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Friday. Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we learn more about what Boston officials have to do to have a new voting map ready in time for the fast-approaching city elections. Low 80s today under partly sunny skies. Those may give way to a few showers. Low 60s tonight, then a great weekend. Mostly sunny in upper 70s on Saturday. Sunny in upper 60s on Sunday. It's 66 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. Polar Park in Worcester could produce a 40 to $60 million deficit for the city over its lifetime. That's according to a new study co-authored by researchers at the College of the Holy Cross. City officials had argued the minor league baseball stadium would pay for itself through tax revenue. But the researchers say the model used to make that argument is flawed. City leaders have dismissed the study. Boston Consulting Group is partnering with Intel to sell artificial intelligence to big businesses. The tools they're building for those businesses employ the same technology that's used in popular chatbots like ChatGPT. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City Councilors are scrambling to draw a new map that'll determine how residents are divided into nine voting districts. That's after a judge threw out a map that counselors approved last year. She said they improperly factored race into how they drew district lines. Meanwhile, there's less than two weeks to go until candidates are supposed to submit nomination paperwork. We asked discrimination attorney Ana Munoz to help us understand this better. Thanks so much for being here, Ana. Thank you for having me. So to start out, what exactly does the judge say city counselors did wrong in drawing this map? Counselors who supported the plan that was struck down were a bit too frank about their desire to create more what's called opportunity districts in Boston. 
And what opportunity districts are in the voting rights world is a chance for traditionally underrepresented uh, minority groups to come together and elect the representative of choice. That's what the Voting Rights Act was trying to remedy. And that's because under the Constitution, race cannot be the predominant reason that a district looks the way it does. Could you drill down on this tension between the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment? So what the Voting Rights Act says is, you know, this is a moment in the 1960s where we're looking around and saying, oh, my gosh, there's such profound history of racial discrimination in the way that we allocate political power in America that we have to take affirmative steps. What the 14th Amendment means today, according to the Supreme Court, is that you can't let race be the only reason that you do things. And so that's just a tension. How do you raise up minority groups, while at the same time doing it in a way in which you're not looking like or creating a record that you've just got race on the mind the whole time. Mayor Wu and some city council members say they can create a new map quickly enough for the city council nominations and elections to go forward as usual. Others have suggested there should be a delay. And when this happened in Boston back in 1983, elections were delayed. So can you sort of take us through the pros and cons of each possible path forward? The filing deadline is May 23rd. The question is, can you make a map that can sort of survive legal challenge by May 23rd? So I think on a practical level, yes. And that's partly because a lot of redistricting now is done using computer programs. It's really actually pretty easy to move lines around. One is to just rejigger completely and sort of start from scratch. And when doing so, be clear about what you're doing and be clear about not just the racial fairness concerns, but all the other concerns. What the judge is looking at is process, not outcome. (laughs) It's like courts guessing what's in the hearts of legislators. City councilors really had a tough time with this process. It seemed really emotional. There were accusations of racism and anti-Catholicism. I mean, why was it so divisive? What is so hard about redistricting is that it should be a technical process, but what's at stake is leadership, is who gets to decide and by whom. And particularly in systems where you have the people who will be running in the districts deciding what the districts look like, there are so many competing concerns. One is, how am I going to keep my job and how easy is that going to be for me? Does this situation overall say something about the political moment we're in in Boston and and where we are when it comes to the representation of communities of color? I think so. Boston's a majority minority city. But historically, you know, this is not a city that's had people from minoritized groups get to be the decision makers. We have a set of city councilors, many of them more recently elected, who want to get at that problem very directly. How do we figure out how to build a city that looks like our city and that reflects the diversity of our city in a way that doesn't lead to conflict, doesn't lead to lawsuits? That's a really hard problem. Attorney Ana Munoz of Zalkind, Duncan and Bernstein Law Firm, thanks so much for helping us understand this. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
Coming up in the next few minutes, the price of eggs has been a key indicator of inflation over the past year. At one point, their cost went up by roughly 70 percent. But now, as the Marketplace Morning Report will tell us, eggs are getting cheaper. It's 8.50. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. My mother died 20 years ago on Valentine's Day, just a few months after her cancer diagnosis. After that, the post office forwarded all her mail to me a few states away. Even after she was gone, she got more mail than I ever did. Letters that painted a vivid picture of who she was. One from a former patient who had no idea my mom had died. Her foodie magazines, solicitations from political candidates. Then, a letter arrived from a good cause she'd given to for years, wondering why her donations had stopped so suddenly. On the envelope in big, bold letters, it said, Natalie, where are you? We miss you. I miss her, too, every day, after all these years. I wish she knew I'd come home to Boston, a city she loved, to run this station. She'd be so proud. My mom loved flowers, too. Send Winston flowers to your mom and support WBUR, a really good cause. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. U.S. officials are putting new restrictions in place to try and stop migrants from crossing the border illegally after the end of pandemic-era immigration restrictions. A federal judge in Virginia has ruled that it is unconstitutional to ban the sale of handguns to people under 21. And the state's COVID-19 public health emergency ended yesterday, which means that starting today, masks are no longer required in most healthcare settings across Massachusetts. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Low 80s today, and it'll be partly cloudy. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston at 852. The price of eggs in China, China, Maine, China, Michigan, and China, Texas, the price of those eggs is down. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. I'm David Brancaccio. First with the U.S. on a collision course with an upper limit on what the government is allowed to pay for spending that both Democrats and Republicans in Congress previously approved. Today's planned meeting between President Biden and congressional leaders has been scrapped. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer reports. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says President Biden didn't cancel today's talks. White House and congressional leaders just decided it was best for staff to keep meeting to iron out the details of an agreement to lift or suspend the debt limit. McCarthy told reporters this is not a sign that negotiations are breaking down. Any agreement could include new limits on federal spending, clawbacks of unspent COVID relief money, and permitting reform for energy projects. Without an agreement, the U.S. could default as soon as June. June 1st. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. One of the highlights from this week's Consumer Inflation Report, prices for what's called food at home fell for a second month. 
Those prices are still well above where they were a year ago, but the price of eggs has just tumbled. Here's Marketplace's Henry Epp. The great egg price spike of 2022 and early 2023 seems to be mostly behind us. So what exactly happened? This is classic supply and demand. Daniel Sumner is a professor of agricultural and resource economics at the University of California, Davis. The quantity of eggs fell because there was disease and we were trying to deal with the disease. Specifically bird flu. And prices went up because there was a lower quantity supplied by the market. The industry was initially slow to respond to bird flu, Sumner says, and the virus stuck around a lot longer than anyone expected. But cases have dropped in recent months and egg producers are finally starting to catch up. If you look at the wholesale prices, they've absolutely collapsed. Consumers aren't seeing all of those savings yet, but the average cost of a dozen grade A eggs came down more than a dollar and a half between January and April. Besides recovery from the bird flu, there's also a seasonal factor at play, says Mark Belmar, a professor of applied economics at the University of Minnesota. As spring comes in and as early summer comes in, hens lay more eggs. And then that leads to kind of there's this increase in the supply of available eggs on the market, which also puts downward pressure on the price of eggs. Cheaper eggs could have a hidden benefit, Belmar says. As the price of eggs goes down, people consume more eggs. They consume more protein via consuming more eggs, which means that they also consume fewer carbohydrates. And that, Belmar says, could have a positive impact on public health. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. After PacWest Bank, based in California, reported that customers pulled out nearly 10 percent of all deposits last week, the bank's stock price fell 22 percent yesterday. But the stock is up 1% in pre-market trading now. The indicators, Dow futures are up 4 tenths percent, S&P futures are up 3 tenths percent, NASDAQ futures are up 2 tenths of 1%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. The southern Mediterranean city of Antalya is part of what's called the Turkish Riviera. It's a tourist destination, but more recently, since Russia's war on Ukraine began, Antalya has also been a refuge, a destination for Russians and Ukrainians looking to escape the war. That has sent house prices surging and added to an acute cost of living crisis, and now it's playing a role in the Turkish presidential election. Victoria Craig reports. Nazla Errol and her fiancé sell a certain vision to Antalya tourists with their motorcycle rental business, a ride with a coastal breeze through their hair. With travelers coming back, business is strong. They figured now would be a good time to buy a home, but they were wrong. Prices went towards Mars. There isn't much to say. It started to increase exponentially. That's why we gave up. We said we could expand our business instead of buying a house. Home prices are high, in part because of inflation, and also because the region is popular with foreign buyers. Here in Antalya, home sales to foreigners jumped 21 percent over the course of a year. Russians relocating after the invasion of Ukraine were by far the biggest buyers. And that squeezes local buyers like Errol. They want ridiculous prices for houses that are uninhabitable. We were exhausted. Instead, we found a house to rent. 
Still, even rental prices have become unaffordable for some. 23-year-old Tala Burke searched for two years before deciding to stay at home with his mom. He hopes to buy when prices cool. If I go in a disciplined way in my career, it might be possible in three years, maybe five years with bank loans. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who is challenging President Erdogan for control of the country, has vowed to ban all foreign home sales for five years or until prices fall. For Remax real estate consultant Azla Kartal, this hot market is great. She and her team celebrate each sale by ringing a brass bell. Antalya is a place that a lot of people want to come. They have many nice job opportunities here. Real estate demand is getting higher and higher every day. In Turkey, investment properties can also be a vehicle to citizenship with a minimum investment of $400,000. That rate has almost doubled from a year ago, which Kartal says has detracted some foreign buyers, but she doesn't oppose more restrictions. Errol, though, doesn't want to see foreigners completely barred. Because we also earn money from tourism and foreign visitors in Italia. A regulation can be brought that will not disrupt local businesses. If Kılıçdaroğlu's six-party coalition doesn't win Sunday's election, it's not clear if President Erdogan would impose further restrictions on international property buyers. In Antalya, Turkey, I'm Victoria Craig for Marketplace. And the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is asking Peloton bike owners to look for a recall notice. Two million of these stationary trainers are being recalled because the seat post can break. Stock in Peloton Interactive fell 9% yesterday. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Duller and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio, the Marketplace Morning Report. May PM. American Public Media. Thanks for being with Morning Edition this week on WBUR. It'll be partly sunny with low 80s today. There's a slight chance of showers. Upper 60s tonight, then tomorrow, upper 70s and mostly sunny. On Sunday, we'll be back in the upper 60s, but it'll be sunny. It's 66 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.